You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Morning, everybody. Um, So as Pete said, we are in a sermon series which is all about overflow. I like this word as a word to use for this sermon series, overflow. So the, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, doctrine and the core beliefs of this church. How do they overflow into the way that we live our day-to-day lives? Today is part two of a mini-series on sex and sexuality. How we as a church want to be a counterculture of sexual wholeness in a world of sexual brokenness. So these two sermons um, are a starting place, really. Um, I'm not in two sermons able to cover everything that the Bible teaches on sex and marriage and on sexuality, but this is really a starting place for you to think and to pray and to discuss about how the overflow of God comes into the way you live your day-to-day life. If you've been dragged here this morning and thinking, whoa, what did you say we're doing a sermon on? Um, If you're not a believer here, really, I'd say use this as a helpful morning to think about what Christians value and what Jesus tells Christians to live for. But these are not moral judgments about you. Um, If you are looking to follow Jesus, though, if you are a committed Christian, then there is plenty for us to get our teeth into this morning. So I'd say if you would be gracious with me, follow a journey this morning as we come into the Bible and say, we want a biblical perspective. Last week, we wanted a biblical perspective on sex and marriage. Today, we are looking for a biblical perspective on porn, masturbation, casual dating, and casual sex. And when I say casual dating, just to clarify, I mean the type of culture where you swipe through an app to find a short-term fix. We are looking as a church to be shaped, to be shaped by the Bible. And so this morning I've, I've called it being shaped and being restored. We're looking not just about rules and morality and trying to just behave better, but what is it that the Bible says about the shaping that goes on around sex and sexuality? I would, as my theory, start by saying sexual sin shapes us, but also Jesus offers to shape who we are. And in terms of restoration, Jesus wants to offer you grace, wholeness, and restoration this morning instead of shame and guilt. And so that's how we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at being shaped, and then we're going to look at being restored. Okay, let's launch straight in. So being shaped. I would suggest to you that a biblical view of the way that our lives work is seen in Ephesians 4, where we read, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him, into Christ. So we, as believers, are looking to mature, to be more and more like Jesus, to be shaped into being like him. The the word shaped uh, dictionary definition is to be given a particular form, to be sculpted to be caused to conform to a particular form, to be influenced in a formative way. So that's what we're talking about, formation this morning. Um, I want to tell you a bit about my dad. He um, worked in a workshop for the whole time I was growing up, which I was never allowed to go into because it's quite dangerous. He was a prototype model maker, and everywhere there was dangerous equipment where you had to wear glasses and gloves, and you could get, you know, if you were a kid running around there, you'd get hurt. But one of the things he did show me was a lathe, Hands up if you know what a lathe is, if you remember that from school. Okay, we're going to watch a quick video of a lathe. It's not got any audio, so I'll talk over the top. So a lathe is a helpful way of us thinking this morning about being shaped. So a lathe actually shapes a particular bit 
of material, so it could be some wood or some metal. And when it comes to um, being formed, it's a helpful, just a helpful way for us to think about it. So as the video comes up in a second, what we are saying, oh, here we are. Okay, so here's a guy, he's got a bit of wood. It's not got a particular shape or a particular form, but he is going to use this lathe to spin it, and then he is going to begin to shape it. As Christians, we are looking to be shaped and formed to be more and more like Jesus. And that's what that verse is saying. We're looking to grow up, to develop, to mature. But what I would say this morning is sin and the type of sin that we're going to talk about can also have a shaping influence on us. So this morning, as we go through and as I open up some of this stuff, the question for you isn't just what do you do, but how are you being shaped? The question isn't just about morality. Are you sticking to the right rules? But what is shaping who you are? The Bible talks a bit about it, doesn't it? It's the things that you say, if they're godly or ungodly, that can shape you. The things that you watch and look at, that can shape you. The things that you do can shape you. So we are asking this morning, who am I becoming by living a certain way? And when it comes to porn and masturbation, casual sex and casual dating, I'm not preaching about these things. We're not focusing on these things just for cheap laughs, just for shock value, but because actually they are things that can shape shape who you are inside. These are topics that, in reality, almost everyone wrestles with, and we need to have biblical clarity. But we're deliberately going to look then at the restoration of Jesus. So let's look at something Jesus says. He says, we're not just about living morally, we're about thinking about our whole lives. In Matthew 5, he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So last week we looked at how sex is amazingly powerful and it's a great thing. But actually... Our problem isn't usually that we've got too high a view of sex, but that we have devalued it. We've got too low a view of sex. Sex, we said, is a bit like fire. Sexual sin has the destructive ability to incinerate vows, family commitments, devotion, and conscience. And Jesus says, your whole body here, he talks about this word hell. Actually, a translation of that word is Gehenna. And you might know from use of that word in other sermons, Gehenna means a a garbage, kind of a rubbish bin, like a a waste land outside of a city where you put all your rubbish and it burns. Jesus is saying here, and I think it's a helpful place for us to start, unless you, unless we learn to deal with sex, it's so awesome and unique, it's so untamable, it can spread destruction and decay in your life. It will set you on fire like things falling apart. Unless you can get it under control, your life is going to burn up. Sex is so powerful, it can shape you. And the things you do, the things you watch, the things you say, the way you live your life can, like that lathe, can shape who you are because it's powerful. And this whole passage is in the context of Jesus saying about all kinds of different ways you live your life. This is a moral standard. So for example, a moral standard in the time would be don't have sex with a woman that isn't your wife. And the religious people would say, well, as long as I don't do that, I'm good. 
And Jesus is saying, that's a moral standard, but I want to just unlock the whole thing in a broader sense. Don't just have a narrow, moralistic view. Biblically, when we sin, we are bending our bodies, our minds, our hearts, our will away from the purposes of God towards the dysfunction, especially around sex, towards the dysfunction of our culture. And so you might ask, well, why have this passage up today? Well, firstly, it just helps solidify that Jesus talks about the dangers of sexual sin. Secondly, Jesus is saying it is destructive. It's not just me making that up. Thirdly, Jesus' tone is saying, don't just try and be moral. Let's think about the whole of your life. But fourthly, I find it really interesting that the word he uses here when he says you look at another woman lustfully isn't. He's not saying with sexual desire. He's actually saying coveting. So it kind of goes back to what we said last week. Sexual design itself isn't a bad thing. God's designed sex. Sex in marriage is a great thing. But when you channel a covetousness in your life towards other women, towards other men outside of marriage, actually you're setting your heart and mind upon something that is deforming. The, the actual impact that that has in your life of covetousness when it comes to sexual sin. Jesus is saying, it will shape you. It will shape you. And so, when it comes to porn, masturbation, casual dating, and casual sex, I want to show you three ways that we are shaped away from the amazing vision of Jesus and shaped towards the real dysfunction and confusion of our culture. So, three ways. Firstly, we are shaped in heart and mind, towards having and using people. And these words, having and using people, are quite a good summary of the current cultural problem around sex and porn. So coveting is setting your heart and mind on something. And porn is virtually always linked with masturbation. It is about seeing a person, not as a person, but as an object of sexual pleasure, something you can have and use. So porn is coveting. We are not supposed to look at someone else and think, I wonder what it would be like to be with them. If you're not married to someone, you have no right, biblically, in the way of Jesus, to fantasize after them. And that includes porn. It shapes you to want something you do not have. And I'm going to extend porn past just internet porn, then also to really over-sexualized music videos and erotic novels, like just something that's going to cause you to cover. And this isn't an issue in 2018 just for single teenage boys. This is something for married and for men and women. Porn exists to present, if you like, a menu of options. But that is formative for you. If you think about sex as a menu of options... It shapes our hearts and our minds away from thinking about just the love of a spouse. It deforms our ability to see relationships in the way that God sees relationships. Okay, so you might be sitting here thinking, this type of verse and this type of preach, this is exactly what's wrong with the church. This is exactly what's wrong with the way of Jesus. It's so over the top. Um, I've been doing research the last couple of weeks and I've found uh, overwhelmingly there is scientific study being done at the moment, the last few years, by faith and non-faith groups about the damage in culture and the damage especially to young people of pornography. 
So there are 35 neurological studies not done by faith groups that demonstrate that internet pornography consumption is a problem, and 50 published studies, some by faith, some by non-faith groups, that link porn use to decreased sexual satisfaction, relationship issues, and an array of negative impacts and effects. So don't just take my word for it. Let me tell you a little bit about how porn and masturbation is harmful. And harmful, you might think, that's a strong word, harmful. It's just innocent. Let me just open this up just for a couple of minutes. We're at a point in our culture where there's an entire generation who have marinated their mind in continuous violent images of misogynistic sex before they even start to date, before they even start to have sex. People who aren't even looking to follow Jesus are concluding that desiring pleasure and the relief that comes from porn and masturbation using explicit material sets pathways in your mind, neural pathways. So over time, you become formed and addicted. Your body becomes habituated and conditioned to go down that particular path to find pleasure. So you're saying, well, what's the harm? I guess I'm saying you are literally conditioning your body and re-hardwiring your brain if you watch porn to become addicted to images that you, and this is where it's quite different for a Christian, you have to conclude that that is something you're training yourself to prefer over someone who will eventually be your spouse. Average exposure to porn is at 11 or 12, which is really when children should be playing sport or having hobbies or going to school, not excessively masturbating to hardcore pornography. And I read this week a non-Christian website which was saying we should bin all of this from our lives, has put this out there. Adolescents are often gaining access to hardcore porn before they've even been on a date and had a first kiss. So millions are growing up and going through puberty using internet pornography, and that means they are wiring their brains to pixels on a screen rather than human beings before they even have their first kiss. If you think about the average boy doesn't hit, or boy or girl doesn't hit puberty until about 13, 13 and a half, and then the average in the UK in terms of people losing their virginity is about 16 and a half, 17. You have got three maybe years of people getting involved in pornography before they're even biologically approaching manhood if they start at 11. But do you not see that that affects, by the time they actually come to relationships and having sex, it affects their view of the opposite sex to become, as we've put on this slide, actually something that you use, something that you want to have, not someone that you want to love. And just as an aside, if you're saying, well, what's the harm in porn and masturbation? If you're saying, I just don't really get that's a problem. The industry of pornography is massively damaging for women. More than ever, you've got women in our society who are being pressured to do things by porn addicts that they've seen online. But also, as an industry, you've got women being pushed beyond the limit of what they can handle. And there are huge issues around sex slavery, even in this city, even in London. If you don't know about that, please do look into how you can stand up for it. But you might sit and say, Rich, this is really extreme. Why are you talking about sex slavery? This is just something innocent. I don't give any money to any of this stuff, but if you do watch internet porn, you know that the way it works is advertising. So by clicking on something, it legitimizes the existence of it and advertising revenue in it, and it participates in the culture of slavery and abuse. So porn and masturbation aren't, I guess, just an activity. 
if this whole thing of being formed is important, they're not just things you do, but they are shaping. It affects sexual taste. It rewires our brains. A BBC article this week that Kezia said, oh, you're preaching on sex. There's an article on the BBC main page this week about sex addiction. has a story about a woman. It's like her anonymous story. It says, BBC says, porn also changed her attitude towards men, and it meant that when she looked for a potential partner, their personalities and character became almost irrelevant. This isn't a Christian person saying that. This is just the effect that pornography has on people becoming things that you want to have and coveting. So coveting leads to this really non-relational, impersonal sense where you don't even really want to commit to somebody, you're just wanting an experience. Patterns and paths of dysfunction. I want to tell you about a different pattern. I want to tell you about a different path, and that's the way of Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian here, you might be sitting here thinking, these are paths and pathways that are formed in my mind. I want to tell you that we as a church believe the Bible says that saying no, resisting and pushing back, not giving in to our natural desires, also is shaping in a good way. That has the capacity to produce deep spiritual growth and profound character transformation. That saying no to sexual desires, not just once but over a sustained period of time, will repress the worst in us and release the best in us. Channel us towards love for God and love for others. And that's what I want to point to this morning is different patterns of living that form us. So when it comes to resisting porn and masturbation, casual dating, casual sex, actually, with God's help, we're looking to form safe and sensible boundaries and new pathways to be shaped. So to follow Jesus in the way of wholeness in a broken culture. We can choose to be shaped by Jesus, and that means choosing to say no, even when the culture around you says it's fine to say yes. And I want to just throw out there, saying no but choosing Jesus is about being passionate about the things that God gives you desires for. Becoming passionate about holiness and purity, becoming passionate about obedience, giving into passion for marriage for fatherhood, for motherhood, for legacy, for integrity. Those are the pathways and the channels that I want you to want to have in your mind going forward. And it's not easy. Choices we make about sex and denying ourselves require some suffering, but have the possibility of shaping, like on a lathe, being formed into Jesus and the way that he was. So that's the first way that we are shaped. Second way is if Um, we look at this topic of sexual sin, we are shaped towards turning inward on ourselves. And this is, Kez, you're going to come up and help me. It was difficult to find a volunteer for a sermon when it came to sex and sexuality, porn and masturbation. So I haven't asked for anybody else in the congregation other than my wife. So last week we talked about C.S. Lewis. Do you remember we talked about C.S. Lewis and had four people out here? It's slightly easier for them to be out here. Um, C.S. Lewis also has another picture which I've just found really, really helpful when it comes to this. He writes in a book to a younger man uh, about how we put the emphasis when it comes to masturbation, we put the emphasis in on ourselves. Um, Augustine says it this way, sin is love turning in on itself. So C.S. Lewis says that desire, sexual desire, is good. The root of it is good. And if, Kez, if you stand over that way a little bit, if I'm a single man, then... Desire, godly desire, 
should make me want to go from being inward, looking in at myself, to actually flourishing, opening up and saying, this is a good thing. So what I'm looking for is to change who I am in order to be attractive to a spouse. To be really open, to be really living my life in a way that I'm changing, I'm sacrificing, I'm outward looking. My love is opening out to the world. Not in on myself, but increasingly open. And that requires increased sacrifice, increased humility, and increased <laughs> listening to other people telling you what's wrong with you. <laughs> and in marriage, if you're married, you know that that's part of the holiness that comes out of marriage, is that you are open. The problem is that if I don't um, channel sensible patterns and desires for sex and for the relationship outward towards somebody else, then actually... I'm not leading to something that's going to be outward, maybe to kids and to grandkids and an expanding outward love. But actually, instead of flourishing, I'm sending myself back in on myself. Sin is love turning in on itself. And so he describes it this way. If you are somebody caught, stuck, addicted to masturbation, what you're doing is building for yourself a whole series of women around you, but inside a prison that you're in. So it's not outwards, it's very insular, and these imaginary brides, if it's a man, imaginary brides prevent a person from ever really opening up. You create for yourself this fantasy where there's no adjustment needed. There's no sacrifice needed. He describes it quite, you know, in your face. He says, If you think about it, you're always a king. You're always a hero. You're always really satisfying. But actually, you're not changing or sacrificing or thinking about others. It's very much insular. There's no call with a wife telling you that there's need for adjustment or sacrifice. It's all just in on yourself. That's great. Thank you. The problem is, therefore, similar to saying, I'm thinking about all that I would spend money on if I was rich, but you're not doing any work. You're not saving or earning. You're just in your own prison. He puts it this way. After all, the main work of life in some ways is to come out of ourselves, out of the little dark prison inside, but instead we can end up stuck inside our own prison. I said that we're trying to talk also about casual dating and casual sex. I would throw it out there that as well as porn and masturbation being a very insular, inward-looking problem that forms these patterns of looking in and looking in and looking in and not healthy patterns of looking out and loving outwards, if you're dating and thinking about, you know, it's fine just to have sex before we get married. It's fine just to live together before we get married. What I want is all of the benefits physically and in terms of satisfaction without the commitment. Then that in itself is selfish and inward. It's saying, I'm not learning the way of Jesus to give of myself, to sacrifice, to invest, to change. Actually, what you're saying is, I don't love you enough to close off all my other options and to commit to you forever, to give myself permanently. I'm just looking for myself. I'm just looking to keep my options open. So that's the second way. When we Watch porn, masturbate, casually date, sleep around. You're turning in, leaning, learning to look in on yourself, not outward. It's not just an innocent buzz that we get. And then thirdly, another way that you're shaped is actually being shaped in addiction. And 
You don't need me to tell you that porn and masturbation is massively addicting. And being a slave to it, not just for men, not just for singles, not just for teens, being addicted actually in some ways, not frowned upon in our society. It's not even... Porn is very, very mainstream. You don't need me to tell you that. Porn is very mainstream now. You think of something like Fifty Shades of Grey, which, I don't know, a few decades ago would have been something that was seen as erotic literature that would have been shocking if you went out in public and waved it around. And On the tube, everyone reads it. People are happy to have conversations and say, I'm really enjoying this sexually explicit book. It is very mainstream. Internet porn is just a click away, and on a smartphone, it's just even closer. And it's very addictive, and that's shaping, that's forming. Addictive behavior changes who you are on the inside. It's not just, I guess hopefully you're picking this up, it's not just things that we do. It's patterns that shape who we are. Pope Francis says it this way, we encounter extremely troubling things on the net, including the spread of ever more extreme pornography, since habitual use raises the threshold of stimulation. So you're enslaved to something that always needs to get bigger and bigger and better and better and escalates. And part of the problem with sexual sin is that it's not just dysfunction that you're aware of in your church community, but it's something that you keep secret to yourself. And secrecy itself is a pattern, isn't it? Secrecy itself is being like on a lathe, just being shaped to be a secret. Rick Warren puts it this way, Satan loves detached believers, unplugged from the life of the body, isolated from God's family, unaccountable to spiritual leaders because he knows they're defenseless and powerless against his tactics. So for many of us this morning, there's something healing around confession, but there's isolation found in darkness in secrecy, and the shame for you might be really real. Let me tell you about another pattern. Let me tell you about Jesus Christ, our liberator. Jesus can move us away from slavery, away from misery. He came to set captives free. At the start of his ministry, he opens up the scroll and says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, anointed me to preach good news and to set the captives free. If you're a parent, I don't really have the answers in terms of what you should say to your children. But I'd like just to say, over these two weeks, I hope you've picked up a conversation is needed with your children at a young age. I've said loads of times, the, first, the average first exposure to pornography is at 11. So you need to be thinking, well, what are we doing around that age to just open a conversation to say, I'm here for you, don't be ashamed, I, wanna, I want you to feel free to come to me and keep the communication open. Okay, so we can be shamed, uh, shaped and formed and deformed, or we can choose patterns and pathways that lead us to be more and more like Jesus. Before we move on to the, the close of this sermon about restoration, I want to pause for a second and look at the topic of sexual orientation. We're covering sex and sexuality for two weeks, and it would seem remiss not to open this up a little bit, but I want to do it with grace, and I want to do it with a sense of this not being a final word of what this church believes on it and the perfect answer. For many of you, sexual orientation is an extremely personal issue and it might feel to you the defining issue of your life. Whether you follow Jesus or not, you might feel it's the defining identity in your life. If you're not following Jesus, you might feel like sitting here this morning, this is central to why you don't feel like you could follow Jesus because of the church's view on sexual orientation. So you could be here feeling confused or angry or wrestling with the Bible and trying to work out what it says. The Bible elevates sex exclusively to 
sex within the commitment of marriage between one man and one woman as the way of God's design. The church, and this church, is to be a place where one identity supersedes every other identity, and that is our identity as Christians as being a son or a daughter of God. So if you think of that as a vertical identity, up and down, that vertical identity should have supreme voice over every other identity horizontally in your life. And that fundamentally as a Christian biblical worldview on sexual orientation is that primarily we are invited by Jesus into his love and to his way to build such a strong vertical identity as a son or daughter of God that everything else in our life comes into his submission and to what he says about it. So if you're not a believer, I would say to you, Jesus loves you. His invitation is to find rest for your soul. And if you're hurt, he wants to care for you. And at this church, we want to be a community where you feel that invitation is extended to you to find the love of Jesus. So I would invite you to bring, if you're a Christian or a non-Christian, all of the things you feel to Jesus, to wrestle and come at them within the beauty of his love and his grace and his life and his example. And Redeemer, I want to say we are going to be a church, a body of Jesus with a welcoming counterculture of Jesus' love in this city. Okay, when it comes to restoration, we've looked quite a lot at a problem, haven't we? <laughs> if, you, if you'd summarize where we've done so far, it's opening up many of the deep issues that would affect many people in this room and the vast majority of people in Ealing. But I want to talk to you about restoration. I want to just preach for a few minutes just to lift our eyes a bit higher as to the way of Jesus informing and shaping who we are. And the first way I want to do that is talk about singleness, because for many single people in this church, saying no and forming patterns of sexual purity is a real, real challenge. And it is for the marriage as well, but as you're a single person thinking, oh, what is my life even about at the moment? We haven't done much over the two weeks to talk to you. So in John 4, Jesus speaks to a woman at the well about her many husbands, and she's obviously got a relationship thing going on, hasn't she? He knows exactly what's going on in her life. And he comes and says, you don't need to thirst anymore. I know what's happening in your life. And she says, come. And she goes to her, oh, it says, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? She kind of finds the fact that Jesus knows everything about her relationships. She finds that good news. She's like, oh, that's really good. Did you guys know? I found somebody. They know everything about my relationships. They could be the Messiah. They could be the salvation. And if you're a single person here, the similar message is what Jesus says to you. I know exactly about what's going on in your head about relationships. I know exactly where you're at. And that's good news. And you don't need to thirst. You don't need to long for someone else's love. It's possible that you're single and you feel, therefore, within a church full of married people, you're a bit of a second-class citizen or that you've fallen into thinking that this somehow will restrict your ability to glorify God or live a passionate life, a meaningful life, a purposeful life. The good news is that Jesus says, I know everything about where you're at relationally, and I am your Messiah. 
A perfect life lived, and this maybe isn't something we say enough, the perfect life lived does not have to include marriage and sex. Jesus was single and died a virgin. Theologically, therefore, singleness can be one of the best seasons and callings in your life. The Christian identity is the only identity you will find that gets its sense of worth, not from others, but from God. If you think marriage is going to fix all your junk, let me tell you it won't. Marriage is complicated, and complicated isn't always bad, but let's not idolize marriage as if it's the solution. Tim Keller puts it this way, I want someone who will fill every vacancy in me, awaken dormant gifts inside, continuously enrapture me in otherworldly emotional bliss. This puts tremendous pressure on another human being. So for some, singleness can feel a bit like purgatory, like we're just waiting to get to the right state in life. But if you look at the life of Jesus, he spent his time well. As a single man, he learned and studied. He taught. He spent his time working. He spent his time praying, serving others. He spent time fighting against injustice. And it might just be, if you're a single person here, that you're more able to discover and lean into your gifting, your calling, and what you believe as a single person than if at the moment you were married. And besides, we all, in our period of being singleness, need to learn to get our prime relationship with Jesus right before we can ever get any romantic relationships right. And what an opportunity, if you're single here, you have to show off to the culture and the people around you that you are voluntarily setting aside a cultural right just to have sex with anybody because you're actively trying to get close to God. Your life can preach that there is one person whose love matters most to me and who can really satisfy, and that's Jesus. It's not easy. I said that already. Actually, decisions we make about sex and sexuality somehow they're not easy, but they have the possibility of change and transformation and shaping. It seems crazy if you're single, maybe. I mean, I was talking to somebody this week about how at uni that it's seen as absolutely bonkers that they don't have sex, that they're a virgin. I found a helpful quote from a Catholic theologian and philosopher, John Vanier, and he says, we all have to choose between two ways of being crazy. The foolishness of the gospel and the nonsense of the values of our world. I'd like to just throw it out there that the type of craziness that Jesus calls on, you'll be really well rewarded for, and that Jesus is looking for that in you. Okay, and finally to close, how can we be people who are restored out of sexual brokenness? How can we find restoration? Many sitting during a sermon like this will have a sense of an ache, just thinking, I'm really broken in this area. And you can have the enemy just reminding you of feeling like a sexual failure. And you might think, you know what, it's too late, or there's so much stuff to sift through. I'll tell you a bit about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God has really been speaking to me about this week, about bringing some of this stuff just to say, Jesus got a message for us this morning about being whole again, about being whole again. So John 8, we read some people, and Jesus is with a woman who's caught in adultery. And I'll just read from John 8. Teacher, they said to Jesus, the woman, this woman was caught in the adult, act of adultery. All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. And go and sin no more is what he said. If you haven't listened to anything else in this sermon, just come with me and think of this picture. As a woman who feels broken, 
sexually and what she's done. Maybe even you feel sexually because things have been done to you. And Jesus has an approach with her where there's accusation on every side and he sends everyone else away. He sends everyone else away until there's this little pause in time where it's just him and this woman. And he could say anything to her, couldn't he? He he could give her a preach. He could tell her that she's a screw-up, that everything's messed up. But he just creates this space where everything else goes away. And it's a moment of mercy. It's just a moment with this woman where he says, my mercy is here. Not accusation, my mercy. And for you this morning, what you might need to know is that God today, between now and the end of the service, just wants to create for you a moment of mercy where all the accusations go away and it's just you and Jesus. And you can just have a dialogue with him and he can bring that restoration. It's not too late. You might feel like it's just too late for me. You can get help. You can talk to God. You can talk to Christians. You can talk to people in the room. Be honest. Get the help you need. Because Jesus really loves to bring restoration to broken people. Uh, the other way that I just want to land and just to, um, to think about this is a, a Japanese art form that I came across the last couple of weeks I'd never heard of before. I was speaking to someone else before the service and they knew all about it, so I obviously don't know much about Japanese art. Um, it's called Kintsugi. And if we could just have the picture up on the screen here. So let me just pitch Kintsugi to you. It might be something you want to pick up as a hobby. Kintsugi is taking a piece of broken uh, crockery, like a bowl or a vase or something, and it's smashed up. And kintsugi is putting it back together by making the brokenness of it its best feature. Taking broken things and through the addition of costly material like gold, filling cracks that are a testament to that (coughs) history that it has. The beauty and the importance that you see in these bits of art is because an artist has caringly restored and now they are worth much more than they previously were because of the restoration. So one person writes about it saying, the fracture on a bowl doesn't now represent the end of that object's life. Rather, it's an essential moment, if you like, a mercy moment in its history. The flaws in its shape aren't hidden from inspection, but emblazoned with golden significance. The pristine is less beautiful than the broken. Jesus can do this in your life. If this morning you're thinking there is such hurt or damage done by somebody else, or because of decisions I've made, I am broken. Let me just land by saying that we want to be individuals who are put together by this golden thread of Jesus Christ in our lives. That's the gospel, is that we're not pristine, is that brokenness is actually more valuable and beautiful than being pristine. And that this picture shows that somehow... Even putting lots of broken things together and the common thread being gold is an even more powerful picture. So if you're sitting on a row and you think, I'm the person in this row that is the most broken, and it's a real problem for me, I'd like you to be able to, and we're not there yet as a church, I'd like you to be able to say, I can see everyone else in this row was also broken. They're not pretending to be pristine, but I can see the beauty of the work of Jesus in their life. And that gives me hope that actually this isn't the end of my story, but there's something beautiful ahead, which is this 
golden artistic work that Jesus does of restoring beauty to the broken. Amen.